a brawl! Dasko with the right! Dasko with the right! Set with the left! Set We knew this was gonna happen. Gage and Twist. McGrath and Troy drop the gloves. It's St. Patrick's Day. Jaboski trying to counter with a right, he gets a couple of good ones in Lassart. He's got him rocking backwards. This is the Jaboski we like to see. Two heavyweights going left and left and left. And look at EJ Stock pistoning that left hand. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting. And thank you for tuning in to episode 25 of the Five for Fighting podcast. My name is Alec, your host, and this is the show where we focus on the players who dropped the gloves and the fans who enjoyed watching them do it. And today's guest is legendary enforcer Rob Ray. He's one of the, uh, well, a lot of people know him, of course, with the disappearing sweater and the uh, the magic jersey that just seems to come right off. But, um, you know, it's funny. Like, he always gets a lot of flack for it, but, you know, it's he actually scores more KOs and I think more fight wins after the uh, the whole the Rob Ray rule per se uh, came into play a bit there. So kind of funny, but uh, of course he's one of the uh, the nine members of the three thousand penalty minute club uh, over the the time in the NHL. So there's only nine guys in there and Rob Ray is one of them. So um, pretty cool. And I can't thank Rob enough for coming on to the podcast. You know, it's uh, again like I say every episode, there's a little fish in a big pond here. So for him to take the time to come on this show and, you know, give me the time of day as, you know, some fan, uh, it's pretty cool to say the least. And it's like that with all the guys. So anybody who I've had on, I really appreciate it. You know, here I am, um, kid with a microphone, just bullshitting and wanting to hear some stories from the boys or, you know, talk with other fight fans, which of course, by the way, tomorrow night, recording with fourth line voice and Chris Banity. So, um, you know, pack a lunch for that one because, like I said, I think I'm going to write out five topics for it, and I think we'll maybe get to one and a half and just end up rambling around about just gibberish the rest of the time. <laughs> um, kind of like we usually do anyways. At least that's how the first Fourth Line Voice episode went for the uh, the debut uh, guest for the uh, the show whenever I, I think it was episode two or three. Um, I think episode two now that I think about it. <clears throat> but, um, no, so, yeah, it does, it does mean a lot for, you know, someone to come on. You know, like, of course, you know, all the guys that come on, whether, you know, they played 100 games in the NHL or, you know, zero games or 100 games in the ECHL. Um, means a lot for them to take the time out of their day and come on to the podcast and share some stories. And, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the reception lately has been good. I still get good feedback from the Pat Barton episode. And um, a lot of people actually really enjoyed the Brian Rasmussen one. I've even had a couple people say that was their favorite one. So, uh, you know, again, Brian, thank you for coming on. Hopefully you're listening to the show and, um, if you're new to the show and you're just tuning in for Rob Ray, you know, go back. I got plenty of interviews with with a bunch of other guys. I got, you know, Jeremy Oblonsky, Ken Tasker, Mike Segroy, the podcasting debut he made before before big old spit and chicklets uh, snagged him up. So, um, no, I got plenty of interviews. Peter Zerba, uh, you know, Mark McFarland, Dan Tice, the list goes on. So just go back in the vault and, you know, um, check out a couple episodes. Um, you know, I apologize if the uh, – 
the interviewing might be a little shaky at first as far as if you, the further back you go, you know, um, just me not being comfortable behind a microphone. I think I've gotten a little bit more comfortable, though I will say I was a, maybe a little bit nervous on this one, just being honest, just because it's, you know, it's it's Rob Ray. <laughs> right, I sound like a fanboy. Um, but real quick, I wanted to say um, I apologize that some of the audio in the very beginning here, right around, uh, probably it probably doesn't start getting as good till the three-minute mark. Um, it might be going in and out a little bit, but not much of the interview is missed, and that was on my part. The internet here has kind of been shaky lately. I think it's because everybody in our apartment uh, community is kind of pent up on the internet, so a lot of it uh, goes in and out from time to time, um, and uh, it was pretty bad. We also had storms that day, so it's a recipe for disaster with everybody kind of cooped up in here during the quarantine, and we have everybody using the bandwidth and everything on the internet. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> I sound like I know what I'm talking about with internet, but I don't. Um, but basically, just a lot of lot of traffic on the internet and the routers and everything like that. So it was a little shaky at first, but we figured it out. So um, if you want to skip ahead to like maybe the three minute mark, if it's unbearable for you, I'm just giving you a heads up. Uh, well, I should say I say three minute mark, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe hit skip thirty seconds. I don't know, like six times, and <laughs> you'll be all right. Um, because, of course, I don't, I don't know when the three-minute mark would be after this intro, of course. So, um, But, yeah, so everything clears up, and, uh, you know, I can't can't promise you that everything sounded crystal clear at the beginning. But, uh, no, it all clears up. And so you might hear a little little bit of choppy editing, and that was Skype going in and out because that's what I used to record the call. So, again, I do apologize. But, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take away anything from the interview. It was still an awesome time interviewing Rob Ray and to go over some of the, the crazy fights he's had in the jersey and – uh, you know, fighting Tony Twist and the, the crazy very last NHL game he ever played, um, or the last, uh, at least the one where he had a fight was against Brashear, and it was the, the infamous brawl with Philadelphia. I should say brawls. There was a couple line brawls during it with Philadelphia and the Senators, so that was a good one. But um, I'm not trying to make this too, too long. Hell, I was trying to make this a midnight release, and it's already 1036, so getting a little late here. Uh, not that it really matters. Uh, not doing too, too much at work tomorrow, so all good, but... Um, you know, again, I want to say thanks for the feedback and if you could please rate and review the show, it really helps the podcast out. And, um, you know, I think gaining a little bit more steam here lately, since I've been able to kind of be more consistent as far as getting content and getting guys on. So maybe picking up a little bit more steam here and a, a rate and review the show, it really helps kind of, I guess it pulls it up quicker or better, uh, at the top of the list, I guess you could say on Apple or uh, iTunes or Apple podcast, as it's called. Yeah. I can't even think of the damn name for it. Um, but yeah, Apple podcast, it'll help it. You know, you look up hockey podcast or something and it'll kind of be closer to the top. So people don't have to scroll down into the depths of hockey podcasting to find this, uh, this mud show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, please rate and review whether you want to give it one star, you know, five stars, you know, it's, uh, much appreciated. I've, I've gotten both, like I say before the other intros. So, um, but real quick, of course, I always got to plug in us, us little fish in the big pond, like I say before. So, of course, definitely always go check out Joe Lazito over at the um, Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box, where he follows exclusively Islanders and Islanders Farm Club uh, enforcers. He's had plenty of guys on, Mick Fukoda, Dean Ewan, Jim McKenzie, the list goes on. Uh, Joe's doing awesome things over there, so, of course, go check him out. Bobby Longgrass over at the Bucket Podcast. He's had guys like Dean Mayran, and John Morasti and guys like that on um of course 
my other partner in crime over there, William at the Biscuit. I know he's got a couple of his boys on, so you want to kind of hear what it's like bullshitting with some of the boys, uh, drinking beer, talking hockey. Uh, you got some of his old friends on there, so those are the last couple episodes. Go check those out. And last but not least, of course, if you want to get your fix of history and hockey, go check out the History of Hockey podcast with Shane Guilfoyle. I had him on for the History of Hockey Fights episode, which I believe was two two or three, I believe three episodes ago uh, once this one releases. So you can definitely go check that one out if you want to sit down under the learning tree and school yourself some knowledge on some hockey fights and where it kind of started in hockey and how it evolved. Uh, that was a fun one to do. Um, but yeah, Shane does awesome stuff. He's got... Uh, a great three-part special with Doug the Hammersmith, and for those who don't know who that is, that's actually the uh, the Doug Glatt, the original Doug Glatt, the real Doug Glatt, we'll say, uh, that that whole movie was based off as he wrote the book, the book uh, Goon, and uh, it was, of course, as you know, later developed into a film, but that was the original. He's got a three-part series with him. He's got his stuff on Danbury, Trashers, uh, following them. So anything, really, I mean, anything you can think of, Shane's got it, so definitely go check that one out. And uh, I do have some we, we, we have some good news finally as far as Forest Line voice goes. I know it was touch and go there for a while and we didn't know if he was coming back or not. But I'm happy to say that he'd, uh, he'll be back and I, I can't remember the name. I think it's Hockey Podcasting Network or something like that, but he'll be back with them. So that's really awesome and you know extend my congratulations over there to Darren that fourth line voice, the original enforcer podcast. And, you know, we're all glad to see you coming back. You know, uh, Joe had touched on it before at his intros to the podcast that we, we hope you come back and, uh, you know, miss the content. So glad to see you coming back. And of course, go check out fourth line voices, YouTube channel. Um, always doing great stuff over there, posting and uploading some great content, a lot of junior fights from guys. And he, of course, just had the infamous gates and twist rematch in the IHL that he just uploaded. So that was good too. And last but not least, as far as the plugins go, go check out winprobertwasking.com. It's run by a guy named Steve, and some of you might know him on Twitter. Uh, He was definitely on the Hockey Fight forums. uh, Fuck, I can't remember the number after, but it was Shrem. Or Shrem, however you want to say it. I was me and Darren joke. We always say it's shrimp. That's what I think it's what we were saying the other day. If I could just call it shrimp eighty one or something. <laughs> but um, no, he's doing. He does an awesome job. And I mean, if you want an in depth look at a top ten list of hockey fights and enforcers, or actually, I say top ten. That's that's not even scratching the surface. I, I want to say it was top fifty or top twenty five enforcers in the NHL history. And you go down the list, and it's the most in-depth look. And whether you agree with it or not, it's still absolutely amazing. The most in-depth look you can get as far as analyzing these guys and fights that, you know, started their career, fights that were, you know, impactful, whether it put them to the top or put them down a little bit. It's, I mean, just awesome content over there from Steve. So go check it out. It's winprobertwasking.com. And, of course, he also has a YouTube channel, always posting great old-school tilts as well. So go check that out. Um, And, of course – the podcast plugins. If you want to check out the podcast, it is on Twitter. It's at f- the number five and then four fighting pod on Instagram. It's just five for fighting pod spelled out normally. And of course on Facebook, uh, it's the official, I say official as if, uh, you know, <laughs> there's any, there's any other five for fighting podcasts out there. Um, but no, it's the, uh, the, the 
Facebook page. So just search Five for Fighting Podcast. Give it a like and a follow and everything. You can stay up to date on any any of those social media platforms. You can stay up to date on, and uh, you know, I post everything there. I'm mostly on Twitter as far as, you know, bullshitting throughout the day or also the Enforcer Appreciation Group on Facebook. If you want to get your fix of a bunch of mixed, uh, you know, fights from any leagues, you know, NHL, AHL, IHL, UHL, whatever the case is, LNH, um, you can get your fix there and actually talk to some of the players and interact with them a little bit there too. Uh, we're over, over 10,000 members. I think we're approaching 10,500 now at this point. So um, it's definitely grown beyond my wildest dreams. But, uh, you know, running along here, running at 1215, you didn't come here to hear uh, hear my dumbass yap for a while. So with that being said, we will pass it over to legendary enforcer Rob Ray. And thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Rob Ray, everybody. This should be good. This should be very good. All right, and today's guest, we have someone very special. It is a man who managed to rack up 3,207 penalty minutes, which makes him one of nine members to have 3,000 or more penalty minutes in NHL history. He had an entire rule in the NHL book changed because of his tactics. The man with the disappearing sweater, Rob Ray. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you Fantastic! I appreciate you taking the uh, taking the time to come onto the podcast and maybe give uh, give people some stories. I know everybody. Uh, I'd run an enforcer group on Facebook, and everybody's always a big fan of yours. So, uh, pretty cool to be able to have you on. So, I appreciate you taking the time, man. No problem. Um, well, I guess we'll just kick it off uh, right from the beginning. So, uh, well, you were born in Sterling, Ontario. When did you kind of start playing hockey? Were you like the typical Canadian kid born on ice? Yeah, pretty much. In our town, there was uh, you know, one gas station, a bank, a grocery store, and, you know, with a curling rink hooked to it. So there wasn't a And, you know, heck, I think I was on my first team at three, travel team at five. Um, you know, it just seemed like you had the opportunity to be on the ice all the time. And then in our town, there was a this uh, called Rodden Creek that ran through and it actually ran right in front of my house on the other side of the road that you could skate on in the wintertime as well. So we were always out there. But, you know, as far as hockey, you played all year round from kickball to you know, hockey games at school. With you cold out and you're kicking a tennis ball or a hockey goes through the side of you, your lunchbox, all that kind of thing. And, and a ball hockey on the street, it just, just seemed like that's all you ever did. In the summertime, it shut down because hockey in the winter and saw uh, you know you kind of it just life revolved when you got two or three channels on your TV but one of them was Hockey Night in Canada and somebody just stood there holding the antenna and you can see the hockey game and you're kind of peeking around the corner trying to see what's going on but yeah, it was all good memories and like I said small town Canada your life revolves around the game so much that you just don't get away from it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's funny. I've always been a fan of hockey myself and growing up down in Florida, it's a little bit different um, <laughs> as far as being able to play hockey, but uh, no, it's cool, man. I know some people get into it a little bit later, but you know, t- typically with, with Canada, it seems that the way to go is everybody's pretty much skating by the time they're able to walk. So, um, you know, it's definitely a typical Canadian kid. Um, well, growing up in Sterling, you know, you're right there next to Toronto, and uh, Buffalo is really right across the pond for you. Were you, a, were you a Leafs fan growing up or a Sabres fan by any chance? 
No, I, I honest to God, when I was drafted by the Sabres, it was like, where the heck is Buffalo? No and, shit, really. You know, three and a half hour drive, but yeah, I, I grew up in a small town where you know you, there was a lot of things you never saw until you got out of the big city. And I went to Toronto a couple times times in my life, uh, you know, town and you know, closer to Toronto, but say Toronto and Montreal. So my area was kind of split for that. Uh, Toronto were Montreal fans, but I was always a Bruins fan. And just see, you know, everything, books and all that kind of thing I had. You know, at that time, Bobby Orr and all these kind of guys were, were really hot. And, you know, them, yeah, they, I can handle Montreal, but I just, I have a hard time handling Leafs. And it's, it was great because you never really liked them before. And when you got here, finally, there's such this town, uh, for the Leafs and, and a competition against them all the time that, you know, you kind of fit right into it because, you know, I didn't have to generate that kind of anger. It was it was already instilled in me from a kid. I, I grew up not liking him as well. <laughs> right on, man. Um, well, that was going to be the next question I asked you, you know, kind of with the, you know, you said you grew up with a little bit of hatred to him. When did you kind of start fighting? Because, you know, I, looking through your career, man, it's, even in the junior leagues, you were putting up 300 penalty minutes. It's not like, because you see some guys, they kind of get pushed into the role a little bit, and they might be, uh, you know, they have 80 minutes one year, then the next year you look at them, they have like 300. But, I mean, you were 300 right from the get-go. So when did when did you kind of start to you yeah, know, fight you know and everything what? like that? I was young. I was young when. All right, before we kind of, you know, got uh, got off track there as we had to recalculate everything going on here, um, I was kind of asking, when did you kind of start fighting in, in hockey? Um, were you kind of pushed into it at all, or did it kind of come naturally into you, like you said before, how you know, kind of had that fire in you a little bit? Well, you know what? You you always kind of had it because that's the way the game was played back then. And when you're coming through the junior ranks in Canada, you know, you're, you're in a fight. Uh, you know, everybody could do it. Stars on the teams could do it. So, you know, you got a good taste of it coming all the way up through. You know, I was a 15-year-old playing with – you know, 20, 21 year old guys, you got to learn to protect yourself. And, you know, for junior B and then tier two that next year and then into to major junior hockey, you know, you, you did it quite a bit, but were you good at it? Probably not. You, right. you held your own just to try to survive yourself. But I got drafted in the summer of 88, went to Rochester that fall. And John Van Boxmeer was the coach there. And he said, hey, look, the way you're going to make this team is play this game. And he says, you want to do it? And I'm like, teach me how. I, I don't know how to do it. Well, that year in Roch, yeah, you were kind of pushed into it a little bit. I think I had four or six fighting for 40-some minute penalties that year. But, you know, you might have won five a year, but the rest of the time you, you kind of were in the trade. And uh, you know, a year later, I got my call up to, to the Sabres to go play, and, and that was a part of the game that they wanted. And that's why I made it to the NHL. So it opened the door for me. But, you, you know, is it something I set out to do? No. But when it was made, you know, very clear that that was your easiest and quickest and probably only path to the NHL, and I was willing and able and, and wanted to learn and to do it just so I could uh, fulfill that dream. Right. And, man, what a team you guys had on that year in Rochester as far as toughness oh, goes. God. You had yourself, you had Scott Medcalf, Kevin Kerr, and Wayne Van Dorp. I mean, pack a lunch when you're going to Rochester. Yeah, Dorper used to park his uh, Fargo van outside the rink. It was an old Fargo van that he pulled up in. He had the fridge and bed and everything in it. He plugged it into the rink. But, 
he was the kind of guy that he'd been through it. He'd been through wars and, and he'd paid his dues. So you learn a lot from the guy, you know, in practice, he'd take time with you and, and show you a few things. And it was the big old long hair, you know, dopey looking wing door, but uh, he brought to it. But Metcalf was probably a guy that really helped me out a lot. We lived together in Ranch and uh, with Kevin Kerr and we, Trust me, we fought every night at home. We fought every night at the bar. We fought every night on the ice, and we had so much fun with it. It made it fun. It was a crappy job, but uh, it made it fun. And along the way, you kind of worked out with each other to uh, figure out little things to give you the upper advantage, and, you know, it, it worked out well for us. Right. And so, you know, you get called up in 89. Did you, you – was it no secret that you're going to make the NHL through just fighting? Um and like you said, if you you had said, coach told you before, this is how you're going to kind of get in there if you got to play like this. It's just how it's got to be. And of course, your job was necessary back then, unlike today where, you know, it, fighting can't quite get you there. And of course, not knocking you as a player or anything. Um, you can't just go out there and be Bambi legged out there. But uh, were you, you throwing all the chips and you kind of realize, hey, this is how it's going to be. So I'm going to do it. And just because you know, your first year you were in Buffalo that was the most pims you had actually it was your first your rookie year in buffalo besides um you know the six games you had before yeah but the thing was that opened up the door for you that gave you the opportunity to get the chance to go to the nhl and even then you just couldn't be that guy sitting on the bench and go out and you know getting a fight uh, periodically i still had to be able to play the game as well because right. everybody that played that role played the game as well and as time went on in the years you know, that role was diminished a little bit. Your ice time started to diminish a little bit as well. But what it did, it just it gave you the opportunity to get there. And then when you got there, you, you made the most of it. And you don't see too many guys that were able to stick around for a long period of time that couldn't play the game as well. Right, Tough exactly. And all this kind of thing. You had to be able to play as well because you couldn't just be a liability in a one-dimensional role. Even back then, you know, you had to be able to play. So anybody that play that role or was expected to play that role back then still played a very big role in most on their team so yeah we, it was more versatile then uh and and i think as time went on it became more of a one-dimensional thing right and yeah that's what people don't understand you always see people kind of comment or whatever on facebook whatever the case may be oh well, you, you know they they couldn't even play back then and whatever well no that's not it at all it was just that was their job goal scorers were there to score you were there to enforce so of course that if that's what you're good at that's what you're there for it's what you're going to do <laughs> like you know your well job people have to that. understand when, they have to understand when you get to the NHL then you they want to kill penalties if you better score goals if you're a physical guy you're physical if you're going to fight you're going to you got to fight and do it well so they don't ask you to do multiple things. Minors and junior, you got to be able to score. You got to be able to do it all. You bring it. But as the things like Dave, best penalty killers I ever played with, and John Muckler and Ted Nolan, they didn't expect them to score 20, 30 goals a year. They expected them to kill penalties. You know, chip in their their ten to fifteen goals a year and. And that was their job. So I, I think most people, and they don't understand that you get to that point, you're you're in your in your field, and that's what they want you to do. And if you don't do it, then you're out the door, and somebody else comes in. So 
you know, if you want to give up the opportunity you got, then you stop doing it. If you want to continue, then, you know, you, you figure it the best you possibly can and, and keep your fingers crossed that they're happy with it year after year. Right, exactly. Well, you certainly did it because you stuck around for, you know, X amount of years. <laughs> you stuck around for a long time. It wasn't like you were you were there for, you know, two seasons and done. Um, so, you know, you had your first NHL fight, and it was against a guy named Nevin Marquardt. What what was it like? And, you know, was it like a monkey off your back, kind of being able to get your first NHL fight out of the way? Well, actually, my first game was in Pittsburgh, and I got a golden assist. I was plus three. I scored my first shift, my first shot. And things were coming easy that and it was like, this is unbelievable. At one point during the game, I had Rob Brown. I don't know if you remember Rob Brown that paid for the Penguins. Long hair, you know, great goal scorer. He challenged me to a fight partway through the game. And I'm like, well, are you kidding me? I'm on a roll here. I'm not fighting you. And that was the first game. You know, the next game was in Buffalo against Boston. Buffalo-Boston then, huge rival. Uh, you know, Boston always hammered Buffalo in the playoffs for two number of years so there was a big hatred for them nevin markworth not a big guy but he was a very scrappy good fighting guy um yeah that was the first time i got to fight in front of our fans and in our building and and first fight in the nhl so it was it was good it was good to get out the back he did pretty good in it so you know from that point on it kind of you know in the first game the fans able to see a score second game they're able to see you fight so they kind of uh gravitated to you and accepted you pretty quick yeah, no doubt. And apparently you were the only person to ever score, uh, I believe the only person, but you scored in your very first shot, and you scored in the very last shot you ever had in the NHL as well. So Yeah, yeah got first shift, last shift, yeah. So it was pretty cool, yeah. When I went back to Ottawa, I think it was like 04 or something like that, and Jacques Martin and I did not get along well. For whatever reason, he didn't like me. And uh, I were in Toronto, I score on the backhand in front of the net. The bench never got another shift. And the handful of games left in the season, they never addressed me another game. So, you know, if you're going to walk away from it, it was pretty cool walking away saying, yeah, first shift, last shift, first shot, last shot. So uh, <laughs> you were able to score. So it was, I don't know how many kind of guys were, were able to do that. <laughs> right. Well, at least you were. Um, <laughs> so the next year, man, I mean, this is, uh, you know, of course, like I said before we got going here, if we were to go through line by line of your fight card, we'd have a, you know, a 14-part saga. But uh the next year in 91 or 9091 you fought some big name guys and the the first guy you actually fought that year in the regular season was Lyndon Byers what was it like fighting him yeah. Lyndon uh Lyndon was a heck of a fighter man he was a strong guy he had great balance uh he, he was a hard guy to get in on and and hurt because he'd be willing just to stand in there and start throwing punches and and exchange and and you know kind of roll the dice to see what happens um, he wasn't a strategic guy, wasn't waiting for opportunities. He just went at it. He was a brawler. And, you know, well, you know, after all this, and, you know, that's just the way he said he is. That's the way he lives. That's the way he is. And uh, he's a street brawler, and that's the way he was on the ice, too. He, uh, you know, didn't hold any back, and there was no, I don't think, strategy going into it or any plan. And he just, he went uh, where they went. Yeah, no doubt. Um <laughs> And so another guy you fought that year too is what well, is actually my personal favorite hockey player. But you happen to fight Chris Knuckles Nyland. What was it like fighting? Oh uh, yeah, uh, Knuckles was great. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you're in that role, and when you're playing these teams that uh, you know the fans have seen so much, and you know they know what these guys have accomplished. If you can go and take a piece of that and 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 do well with it, that that escalates your 
I'm not saying popularity, but respect level amongst uh, not only the guys in the dress room, but the fans and management as well. So, you know, you know who you got to go after. And, you know, Chris is the kind of guy who played an honest game, but he played a hard game. He was like myself, not the biggest guy in the world. I'm six foot. I played at about 210 pounds most of my career. So, you know, it was a more of a, when you grabbed onto a guy like Chris Nyland, you knew that it was going to be a marathon. And he wasn't going to come at you and just start swinging and swinging. He'd wear you down. He'd grab onto you. He'd take a few punches and wear you down. And you knew when you grab onto guys like him and Jay Miller and Marty McSorley, all these kind of guys, that it was going to be a marathon. And you had to pace yourself. You had to know what going that, you know, you can't go gung-ho off the end because off the, the beginning because they're just going to take it. They're going to absorb it. And then when they know that you're tired and they're going to pounce on you. So with Chris, it was just a matter of knowing and, and kind of asking a lot of questions leading up to it that, you grab on, you wait, you wait for your chance, wait for your chance. And and it was a pretty good fight, you know, him and I going back and forth. But I got a great picture of, you know, him when it was all over with. It's it's his shoulder is coming over my shoulder and kind of whispering something in my ear. And you caught it on the on the picture that I have. And, and he was a great guy. He says, good job, kid. Keep it up. And I'm like, you know, from that point on, he's been fantastic. Still see him when we go to Montreal a lot. He's living radio. So, you know, get a chance to see him during those games. So. Yeah, he, he was a guy that was a hardcore guy, but totally respected what you were trying to do as a young kid. And when you gain those guys' respect like that, uh, you know, it's a good feather in your cap. Absolutely. Yeah. Chris, uh, Chris, my personal favorite, and he was nice enough to let me go stay with him up in Montreal. So, uh, definitely had to ask about that. As soon as I saw that on your fight card, I was like, oh, I just like highlight this one. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so you know, it's like you said, it's good to see him doing uh, doing well up there with his little radio show up there on TSN six ninety. He's always doing it every day, so uh, good to see that. Um, so the next year, though, you ended up uh, you got another teammate, and it was kind of riding shotgun with you there for a long time. Another fan favorite out there in Buffalo, and of course, many people are going to know him. But Brad May, what was it like playing alongside May Day? Oh, Maisie, Maisie was a top that just was one time, and he was like a. Uh you know, a, a powder keg that just wanted to explode at any given time, but he, he had no patience. He's a guy that when John Muckler coached us, he'd use it as a strategy going, hey, he'd start myself, uh, Brad at the time, Gordy Donnelly, you know, whether it was Matthew Barnaby, Bob Bugner, whomever we had, Brent Hughes, we'd start our, our line at home especially. And it'd be like, okay, boys, get the crowd going. And we knew exactly what we needed to do. But Brad would at the beginning of the game, he'd go, I want to get this guy. And we're like, okay, Brad, take whoever you want. I got to fight. And he always had to fight first because he couldn't control himself. So you always kind of like, okay, puck would drop. You're looking at Brad going, okay, come on, get it going, get it going. So he'd get in his fight when it was all said and done. And then, you know, we continued after that. But he was the kind of guy that just had to get it done early, you know, because he was so uptight, nervous all the time. But uh, I'll tell you what, Brad punched so hard. He either hurt himself or he totally destroyed the guy he hit because of the power he had in his punch. He gave everything. I seen one night, I forget who he was fighting, right of our bench in Buffalo, and he had this guy up against the wall, and he was just teeing off on him. And just the one punch, the guy moved his head just at the last second. Brad's hand hit the glass, and it just exploded. But he was able to just keep going from it. When it was all said and done, he had broke the bones in his hand and that by missing the guy, punching the glass. And But uh, I'll tell you, he was a warrior. He was a tough guy, man. He he let her rip. And I'll tell you, when when he wanted to go, we went to one in training camp. 
And when I locked on to him, you know, I, I made sure that uh, I knew what I was doing because he was a young kid then, but he was physically big and strong. And, uh, you know, he, he knew how to handle himself from day one very well. Right. Yeah. I love Brad May, a big fan of his, uh, you know, he's a guy who did it even into the modern day ish kind of, you know, the early two. 2010s and everything like that so uh no it's definitely good to hear and you know speaking of those training camps what were they like back then because of course uh, training camp uh, now compared to back when you played is it's a different animal <laughs> like did you even yeah did you even play with the little black thing on the ice well sometimes not i think submission games you know they were just it was dreadful to play in and, and especially when you establish yourself in the game uh as the role you were playing every young kid wanted to come at you every one kid wanted to have a pc and and you just knew going into it, it was going to happen. And, you know, so many times you just try to avoid it. Uh, but in most cases, you just, all right, get it over with. It was done. And it was an easy way sometimes to get out of the game in an exhibition game. But you know, even training camp, I played hard. And it's different then than it is now. They, we went at it because we're fighting for jobs. You know, a lot of cases now, these guys have got their positions. You know, back then, it just uh, didn't matter if you were around for a year or, or 10 years. You were fighting for your job every day. So you played hard and things happened. And, you know, so many times in training camp, I can remember when Matthew Barnaby came in, you know, John Muckler was like, hey, we got this kid coming in. Just stay away from him. Leave him alone. I'm like, I'm not going to go after him. If he's an idiot, then I'm going to. Sure enough, Matthew, being Matthew, you know, he comes at you. We get in a fight. And I'm just looking up at Muck, shaking my head, going, what the? And he's just, you know, looking down, laughing. And, you know, Matthew, we went at it a couple of times, Brad, you know, but every young kid that came in to want to establish himself, whether in your organization or any other, you knew you were going to lock horns with them. And, you know, it was, it was fun at time, but it, it, as, as it went on, it got old, but it was a good tune up sometimes because in some point you had to get into it because you didn't want to have your first fight or two being in the regular season. You wanted to make sure you had it tuned up, you know, pretty good by the time you got there. Right. Yeah, of course. You don't want to uh, don't want to, you know, be sleeping. And the next thing you know, you're getting popped first thing in the regular season. Yeah. Um, well, you, you brought up Barnaby. Of course, I was going to bring him up later, but we'll just talk about it now. What was it like playing with Barnaby? You know, he's quite the character in the in the hockey. Uh, world. He's a beauty. I'll tell you that uh, he's been the same guy since he got here till he is now. And uh, he, he's a really good guy. I'll tell you what, he's a he's a good person. He's a guy that, uh, you know, is totally respectful to my family, to my wife, my kids. He's, he's somebody that, uh, I, I enjoy being around. I've enjoyed playing with them. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad that I can call him a friend and we've done business together. We, we've done a lot of things. We lived together for, for a long time when he first, came, but, uh, he was a guy that he didn't care about anything other than doing what he had to do. And he would take, on the biggest guy the smallest guy whatever it may be and he not only did it in a very good way i'm amazed he never got hurt doing it put it this way but he he always did it at the proper time it just seemed like you just didn't know when he was going to pop off but uh he did very well at it he for a little scrawny guy he wasn't a big guy that you know he he controlled himself very well and he handled himself and he could just he was just gangly i thought him once he went to pit because he did so much playing again you know one point it was like Lindy just looking at me going kill this kid get just kill this guy so it, it was hard at the time but you know respectful afterwards about it but he's a guy that uh, you know he made the most of it because he had some nice hands he could play the game 
but he got sidetracked a little bit with the fighting sometimes, putting on the show because everyone turned into a show for him, and and that's part of the game as well. It's an entertainment thing, but I give him a ton of respect for for doing what he did, taking on some of the guys he did, and and actually uh, surviving. <laughs> yeah, Barnaby. He, uh, you know, he may have been a pest out there on the ice, but he definitely he he didn't matter. He would drop the gloves with all the all the big boys. So I, you know, I nothing anybody, but respect for him. Anybody, yeah, nothing but respect for uh, for Barnaby because he'd always, like you said, answer the answer the bell when it came time. And you don't see that today in today's game. You know, you got guys running around doing whatever, and they don't have to answer for anything. Of course, with the rule changes and just the direction the game has gone, unfortunately. Um, but you know, this year, you know, you got ninety one, ninety two. We start to see the uh, the infamous Rob Ray. So you start to see the sweater coming off more and more. Um, where did you? When did that kind of click in your head? Like this could be really good for me to use because it was it wasn't a rule then, of course. Um, so when did when did you kind of start really noticing to do that? And this could be really used to your advantage. Well. I never liked anything tight on me to begin with. You know, you never wore an undershirt, all that kind of thing. So I always wanted to be loose. So our our trainer, Jim Pizzatelli at the time, we called him the fight doctor. And he he was so into fighting all the time and, you know, always trying new things. And it was an era where you tried silicone in your sleeves. You tried, you know, making the sleeves bigger. You tried to make them tight so nobody could hang on. So many different things were going on. So we, what we did was actually go to a goalie cut jersey. So you use the goalie cut. Uh, so it's a little bigger, the arms, a little bigger, a little shorter in the body. And, uh, it, it just seemed like when you were doing it, and I never tied down at the time. So having it loose like that on your body, a couple times getting in the fight, next thing you know, it started coming off because I wore very, very small shoulder pads and, you know, things would come off. So thinking, Hey, this is working pretty good. So eventually cut the, the straps off the, the arms and the shoulder pad, cut the straps off underneath the shoulder pads. And just put a piece of Velcro on each pad. And that Velcro stuck to the jersey really good. So it's literally, you put the jersey, the shoulder pads on with no straps, put the jersey on. The Velcro held it in place. Your elbow pads were always nice and loose to fall off. The arms in the goalie cut are a little bigger so the elbow pad could slide out big and quick. So it, it just started. It started from there. And, you know, you had success. It was good for a while. A lot of some guys, you know, tried to do it at the same time. I was very comfortable wearing small equipment. I didn't need the big shoulder pads. I didn't need all that kind of stuff when I when I played that, you know, for the protection side. So when they came off, I'll tell you what, there I seen some, I can still see so many guys all of a sudden, you know, bang, they got my jersey and everything in their hand. There I'm standing with no shirt on and their eyes are like popping, going wide open, going, What the hell are now? Because that's when I started going on the offense and, and caught them off guard because they had nothing to hang on to. There was nothing they could do. And uh, other than stand there and start swinging, and when I've got a good hold on them and, and just doing what I needed to do, then, uh, you know, they're in a bad position a lot of the times. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> definitely definitely sucks in a hockey fight when you can't have anything to grab onto. Um, you know, keep it on the topic with sweaters. So I, I, I'm very big into collecting, uh, you know, Enforcer game-worn jerseys as well. And I personally don't have any of your sweaters, but I know a couple people that do. And this was after, you know, the tie-down rule came into play. And all that's left in your your sweater is like a buckle in the front of it. What's um? Did you have like almost like a, a system where the fight strap was coming like from the back up through the front? No. No, the, the, the strap that are on the jerseys now, when you hook them on your pants, it still allowed the jersey to come up too high for me. Right. So I, I didn't like that. So those... 
plastic snaps, the ones, you know, they slide in and they snap. I had one on the back and I had one on the front because the back was fine. And then well, guys like Ty Domi and that would start lifting up the front of your jersey because that didn't come out. So they started lifting up the front. So it was like, okay, I solved that. Sold them on the front, snap them together there as well. So you had snaps on the front and the back and you had them hooked on your pants. So there's no way that jersey would come up either way. There's nothing you could do to get the jersey off unless you leaned over and did the snaps to, to get it off. So just in a way of keeping it down, keeping it in place, and, and not allowing them to get the, any type of advantage by lifting the jersey up one way or another. Yeah, it's funny. You go from you go from getting everything off to now you want everything tight down there and not lifting it off. <laughs> Different yep. world. Kept um, the arms kept the arms big in the jersey so you could still move and get the elbow pad and everything off. And and even if the you know they grabbed onto your arm, you could still get your arm out underneath your jersey and it was still fine, you know, because it was still strapped down. As long as it stayed strapped down on you, you could still get that right arm out a lot of the times to use it if you needed to. So, yeah, just uh, you know, little things like that, a little intervention, a little you know, experiment here and there and, and some guys that were into it and excited about it, uh, giving a lot of suggestions. <laughs> what did you think when they actually came out with the rule that you couldn't, you know, have the, the sweater come off during a fight anymore? Did you, you kind of reevaluate or did you really just like, yeah, fuck it. I'll still, you know, I'm still going to kill well, people. <laughs> I thought it was ridiculous at the time. And it was like, why, why would you worry about that so much? Like there was a, that was I doing something so bad out there that, uh, you know, people had to complain about it and complain about it enough that they'd they'd have to change the rule. But so be it. You you, uh, you dealt with it. I remember my first fight. It was against Ty in exhibition, and when we had to put the the straps on, and we hadn't totally figured it out yet because it was still at the beginning. And he actually got my jersey up and then pulled it, and I had my head inside the arm of the jersey, and there I was like this. I had hold of him. My arm is stuck up here because I couldn't get it off. And I could see him laughing through, you know, looking through the jersey. I could see the little shit laughing. And he got me there. And uh, from that point on, it was that's where you kind of went to the, the snap on the front, too. And it was like, no way is that going to happen again. And uh, so just, you know, events happen on the ice that kind of spur things and, and give you ideas. So, yeah, it, it, when it happened, it was whatever. You know, it's kind of, you know, I think there's a lot more things in this league you should be worrying about than, than whether a jersey's coming up. Our game's an entertainment game, and, you know, we're out there to entertain a lot of cases, too, and people enjoyed it. So, you know, I, I think they when they started messing with the, in, in a situation like that and then the instigator rule, you just knew fighting was in a bad spot. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny, like you said, like how you get, one thing like that will make it uh, make it change your, uh, your, your ways there and how you end up going to the buckling system on the front and the back. So that's, uh, that's pretty neat. But, uh, you know, that same year, you, you also happen to have a fight with a, uh, with a fan up there in Quebec. What was, uh, what was that like? And of course, uh, a lot of people have seen that who, you know, even if they don't watch hockey, they've probably seen that video. <laughs> yeah. What happened there was on the ice, there was a five on five fight. Herb Raglan had ran over Clint Malarchuk and they were fighting on the ice. And then it turned into a five on five on the ice. So we're all standing watching it. And like out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy sitting on the top of the glass behind our bench. And it was like, you look and then everybody started looking and, and John says, I'll get him. And I can, I got a picture of him grabbing onto Ken Sutton going down to, to push the guy back into the stands. And at that time he jumped over. I had made my way down the bench to where he jumped in as he jumped in, grabbed onto him, threw him onto the ice. He jumps up off the ice again, comes right back to the boards where I was, 
I had him by the hair like this, and I had his head down on the boards. And I hit him like 16, 18 times or whatever, and I stopped because my hand got sore. And by the time that happened, the cops had come out through between the two benches and were jumping on the guy to try to get him. And, you know, they fall to the ice with him, and I stopped. I had a ball of hair in my hand out of his head that it was like it just like a big roll that came out. And we're like, what just happened here? They dragged the guy off. You hear him screaming back. You you look down, and the Quebec Nordiques are sitting on their bench, and they're all like, not moving. They're just sitting there staring, going, <laughs> what the hell is going on over there? And, you know, it was funny. The cops had to come back out on the ice afterwards because there was bullets that must have fell out of the guy's belts uh, when they're out there. So they're picking up bullets off the ice. They scrape everything up. They, they go bound into the hallway. They take care of that guy, and the, the game resumed from there. So... Yeah, it was a pretty like eventful thing. And <laughs> like nothing happened. I never got a penalty for it, never got anything out of it. And, you know, from that point on, it was just like, well, I have no idea what happened and why he would do it. But uh, I don't know. He actually did a, an interview afterwards and he said he was protesting the violence in the game or something like that. And I'm like, you shouldn't do it when you're drunk or high or whatever you were because no normal guy would jump into the bench like that and, and try to make a statement if he wasn't uh, on something. <laughs> protesting the violence in the game and <laughs> he ends up getting teed and off that's what him. happens <laughs> yeah that's, that's funny i love one of the uh one of the comments that's uh always in the video he's like well he, he hung in there for about 15 good ones with rob ray so i'll give him credit <laughs> well <laughs> oh, that's what booze can do yeah exactly he's got that uh the <laughs> the liquid courage there um you know that year you also fought another killer man and he I mean, one of the meanest SOBs to lace him up, but you fought Dave Brown. And by the end of it, both of you guys well, had your tarps off. What was that like fighting Brownie? I'll tell you what. It was in Philadelphia, and, and John Muckler had dealt with Brownie in, in uh, Edmonton. And uh, John Muckler was a coach at the time. And I can remember that it was about to happen. And all I can hear is we're squaring off, and I can hear Muckler on the bench, and he's screaming, Razor, don't do it. Don't do it. And I'm like, too late now. I'm too deep into this. We got to get going. So we grabbed onto each other. We're throwing punches back and forth. And our jerseys come off. His come off first, I think. And then mine came off. And we're going back at it. And I'm feeling good about myself. And, you know, we're going at it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm hanging in there with this guy. And I'm like, uh, I was excited, actually. And, and I caught him with one after the jersey came off. And kind of, it was kind of like right in his left cheek. And you popped him. And just then, he just kind of stumbled and went forward and grabbed onto me. And and he goes, that's enough. And I'm like, okay. And I skated away. And I'm like, I survived it. I, I, but that was the fight in my career that I kind of looked at. It and I went, okay, I can do this. I can do this at this level and do it against the big guys. Because until that point, that was my biggest accomplishment. That was my you know, mountain that I climbed, made it to the top. And I'm like, I just beat Dave Brown. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And from that point on, it kind of, you kind of had that inner confidence that, you know, you could fight anybody and, and be okay with it. Not saying win them, just saying fight them and, and be okay. So that was a big fight for me. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, if you survive uh, survive Dave Brown, you're doing something right because he was an absolute killer back then. Um, you know, one of, like I said, one of the meanest guys. And people out there, if you don't know Dave Brown, just look up some clips and uh, if you, you'll be shocked. Have you got to stuff. know Dave Brown, though? Dave works now. He's a scout in the NHL, and so you see him around quite a bit. And he's most quiet, 
quiet spoken, just kind of guy, how you doing, everything. And it's amazing. You look at him now and where he was as a player, and it's like, this is just two different people. This isn't <laughs> the same guy that, uh, you know, ran ranks in the NHL and people were feared of uh, for, for so many years. But it's pretty cool. Yeah, of course. And, you, you know, you put that jersey on. And like like with most people, you know, the tough guys are always the nicest off the ice. But when, as soon as that jersey goes on and the, the switch is flipped to go on the ice and do a job, it's it's uh, it's a free-for-all and it's a completely different person, like you said. Um, that same year, you also had a really good fight with Darren Kimball. And it was just like absolute, you know, there was no defense. <laughs> you went out there and you were both just chucking rights at each other nonstop. What was that one like? Well, Darren's a big guy and he was strong and, and he, you know, he was another one of those guys that was not going to waste time with strategic thing. He wanted to stand there and there and he just wanted to lock and load and let you have it and, and see what happens. Uh, you know, there were so many guys back then that, you know, like say like a Linden they they were just riverboat gamblers, man. They'd stand in and if it worked out good, great. If it didn't, then, you know, they, you know, deal with it. But Darren Kimball's a big, strong guy that, you know, we we're pretty close in age, and and uh, he he was just a guy that just you looked at him, he was scary. He had that long, dragged up face. He always had the Vaseline on, and and it was just like kind of give you those scary look out of those eyes. But you know, he was just another one of those guys that uh, you knew when you grabbed on. It was not going to be a two or three thing. You knew you were going to get hit, you were going to get hard, and you better be ready to stand in there for you know a couple minutes because he's not going to fall to the ice. He was one of those guys that's not going to go down. He's not going to have bad balance. He's going to stand there and throw and and until it's over with. So, you know, I just uh, you know a lot of guys the same at that time. But he was he was such a big guy, long arms that you had to fight him a little different. Yeah, I love Kimball. Kimball's awesome. Uh, he, he's yeah. pretty good on Twitter too. So uh, if you, those listening, go follow Kimball on Twitter. He's always posting good stuff. Um, then that also that same year, man. Of course, like like I said, going through your fight card, I could sit there. And we could you know, pick fly shit out of the pepper all day. Yeah. Um, but you also fought Dennis Vial and that was your first oh. of many. What was it? What was yeah. led up to that saga that you had with him? Like, what was it with him? He used to call him Denny, the dancing bear. And it was hilarious because, you know, Denny was strong. He was a rugged guy and you didn't really know what to expect. I think the, I think the first time I fought him might've been in Ottawa at the old rink when they first came in. And it was a good fight, you know, going back and forth. But over the years, we went uh, quite a few times. And we had one fight here in Buffalo that started at one end of the rink, went down to the other, and ended up back into the same end where we started again. But he was a guy that could take a punch. He had big shoulders. He was up strong up top. So, you know, you could get him off balance a little bit. I caught him a couple times by going at him and pushing him back and pushing him back as I'm hitting him and and getting him moving that way and you kind of you got him in a couple of bad spots that way but for the most part Dennis was he was going to wait he was going to try to wear you down he picked his spots he threw a punch here and there he wasn't going to stand in there and just trade toe to toe for a long period of time you may do it for you know a few seconds and but for the most part he was he was so strong in the upper body that he could wear you down so that's why you had to get yourself free and you had to go on the offense because if you got him, you know, kind of backing off a little bit, that's that's where you had the advantage with him. But if he got you in a position up against the wall or something like that, so strong he could control you, you weren't getting away from it. So you had to keep a guy like him, you know, out of, off the wall, get him out in the middle of the ice and, and just keep him moving because if anything, his balance wasn't, you know, maybe uh, uh, as good as a, some guys – he was very good at it. Don't get me wrong, 
but he was not a guy you wanted to get in a position where he could overpower you. And you can overpower somebody against the ball, so you wanted to keep him out on the middle of the ice. Right, yeah, and I love the fight you had with him, um, and I think it was the one in, you. yeah, you were definitely in Buffalo, and it's probably your most famous one, where you both trading toe-to-toe, and you end up TKOing him, you cut him open on the side, um, <laughs> and you, the, leading up to that fight is one of my favorite videos of all time, because it's like, uh, you don't you don't see that in today's game, of course, in the build-up, and you hear the crowd, and you, you got RJ saying, you know, the boys on the bench are all standing up, you might see one or two here. And there's just a buzz in the arena, like you know what? What kind of led up to that one? And you, it's you and Brad Mayer on the ice at the same time. So what? What was the big buzz going on, and w- how did that kind of come about? Well, it's hard to say. You know, each individual fight like that. I think there was 260 yeah, or 70 right. fights, you know, over the year. But <laughs> when you were playing a guy, <clears throat> playing Ottawa, playing Denny, then Denny was by himself. He would have been by himself out there you know, taking care of everything, you know, protecting guys, you know, making sure nobody get hurt. He did an excellent job. Um, and he, he was a very reliable guy doing it. That's why he stuck around for the time he did. But, uh, you know, in our building, it, when it started buzzing like that, if something happened, you know, the whole building, all of a sudden they'd start chanting, you know, we want Ray or, you know, and, and it's like, all right, here we go. And then whomever it may be on the other side would be, I'm, I don't know. I've never asked, but it'd be like, oh shit, here we go. Right. You know, because you know the, you know the, fifteen or sixteen thousand people in the building. Everybody's against me. You know, they're coming at me. I'm the only one out there, and it was a, a pretty crappy spot to be in. So, you know, with him when I, I or anybody in that position when they started hearing that and getting it fired up, and and Maisie would feed off something like that too. He'd want to go out and you know feed the fuel to that fire in the building too. So. But, you know, the good thing about Denny was he was always a willing combatant. He was always a guy that was, you know, there and he'd be willing to do it. And, you know, he'd take his lumps if he had to. He came out on the positive side, you know, just as much. So uh, I respect him for the way he game, played the game because, you know, he, he didn't pick and choose the spots. He, he, he dealt with what came his way and, and he handled it very good. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, the the buzz going on, and man, what a feeling that's got to be. And, and of course, you get done with the fight, and you, it's funny because your helmet's like almost like right down here on your head, and you're skating away, and you're high five, and the boys going into the tunnel and everything. So, what a feeling that's got to be. Um, yeah. So the next year in '95 was a big year for you because, of course, you you ended up fighting Tony Twist, and of course, oh, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> what was what? Was, I feel like that's just got to be like riding a bull. Well, Tony, Tony was a massive man where he is still a massive man. Like he was, you know, you look at this guy and it's like, you're not a hockey player. Like there's no way that you can be a hockey player. (laughs) He's like a linebacker. Massive, massive man. (laughs) And, you know, I I had dealt with Tony a little bit that, you know, when he was in Quebec and that, and when he was younger, but that night in St. Louis, we, when we went at it right off the face off, we went at it. And one point along the line, he hit me right here in the in the side of the eye and the pressure of him hitting it pushed my eyeball through my orbital bone up in here so what happened is the air that i was breathing was not coming out my nose it was going through down that cavity into my face so the fight's over and everything but partway through the fight it was like you just felt like your head went hollow it was like the weirdest feeling ever and it was like oh my god something's wrong here something you know Never knocked you out, never nothing like that. It was like, 
something's not right. So you go to the penalty box and, you know, serve my time and went in the room and, you know, the trainer's looking at you and I had a little blood in my nose. So I went to blow the, the blood out of my nose and by the pressure built up the air, as I said, went down through that hole into the to bottom of my cheek. And it was like a big ball, like the size of a golf ball. And the trainer's like, oh my God, what, what happened? And I'm like, ah. And all of a sudden, it started moving up my face slowly. And, you, like, you could feel it. And I'm looking at all them going, like, and it, as soon as it to my eye, it went tight shut, just like that. And it took, like, nine days for that air to flush out of your system and outside, inside and for that eye to come back open again and be okay. But there's, like, a paper-thin orbital bone up in here that that pressure from that punch pushed it through, broke it, and allowed that air down into your, to your, down in here into your face area. So, yeah, it was, that was nasty. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me in a fight. And, you know, the cool thing was, Tony knew that I was in a little bit of trouble there. And after the game, you know, because I didn't go back out and finish the game, you know, he was, you know, came over to the dressing room after asking the trainers, is he okay? Is he okay? I'm sorry. You know, you know, type thing. So total class act. And it was awesome. And a lot of respect for that guy. That's awesome. Yeah, that's of course, you know, Twister's being one of my favorites, too. And, um, man, I, I don't think I've ever heard any injury quite like that before. You know, you always hear about black eyes or, you know, a couple of Oh, it was sick, man. Nose. I'll tell that's you. insane. And I could just – it was like six, eight guys standing in front, and they're watching it, you know, slowly move up your face, and their eyes were like – I'm looking. I'm looking at their eyes. I'm going, oh, shit. I'm oh <laughs> So – yeah, it was more scary looking at them than than actually what was happening. I was going to say, it's got to be a great feeling. Ended up being all good. Yeah, looking at them and all their kind of just, you know, like a deer in headlights looking at you. You're like, yeah. what, what, do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what's wrong? What's going on? <laughs> I could feel they just couldn't see it. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, so that year, though, you came back and you, you had, I mean, an infamous knockout. And, of course, it was against Jim Kite. You know what? And you, you looked like you almost said something to him. Um, being all weird but i don't know uh, yeah so uh but no i was gonna ask you had an infamous ko against a guy uh that year as well and he looked like you almost said something to him after you knocked him out but it was against jim kite what was uh what was that fight oh like? gosh that was in uh, san jose and you know him jim you know i played hard good you know rugged guy and in San Jose, small building, everything's right on top. You, we made contact in the corner. Coming out of the corner was, you know, we're going to fight. We went at it. We went at it, and I caught him, and, and he crumbled. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And the trainers, you know, that was really the first time you got somebody. The trainers had to come out and really help up off the ice. And then he was, you know, kind of Joe, he was in a bad spot. And, you know, they're, they're helping him off. And, you know, it, it was like, oh, my God, you know, I, I just I did that. Because when you you don't go into it thinking that's going to happen, but when it does, it's like kind of catches you off guard sometimes. And you, it, all of a sudden, it, the light switch on comes on, and you're like, you know, you start thinking, oh my god, you know, what would I do in that situation? Or thank God that's not me. And so, but that was a good fight. You know, him and I went at it, caught him with a good one, and and down he went. But in San Jose, when they were helping him off, and you could just see the position he was in, it was so quiet in the building. You know, you're actually sitting in the penalty box, and I'm I'm getting the feeling like I did something bad. I, I, I did something wrong here because it was so <laughs> quiet, and I was like I was feeling guilty over it. But you know, if it was if she was on the other foot, it it would have been you know the same things. But no, it was a good fight. He was a big man, and he's another one of those guys that old school guys that uh, 
you know, when you, when you got a hold of that, you knew it was going to be a long time and, and they could fight for a long period of time, but he was a big long arm guy. So you had to kind of get in tight on him a little bit and being a little bit shorter helped me because I got him bent over a little bit a couple of times. And, and I think that's where I was able to catch him. Yeah. Jim kite, man, he had, he actually for, for a couple of years there in like the early, uh, or excuse me, it might've been late eighties <clears> or it would have been the early eighties. Um, he was he was one of the heavyweights of the league, and I mean he was rolling through dudes, and that, that's what people don't understand yeah, he about was. Jim Kite. But yeah, Kite was awesome. Uh, so yeah, great to hear the backstory on that because of course you know you see uh, seen the videos of it and everything like that, and everybody knows the you know the good night Jim Kite phrase. Um, but so you know the next year you you had another good KO. I mean, and it's funny I, I always have to laugh when I see people. Oh, Rob Ray was only good with his sweater off. Well, I think you had more knockouts when you, you, the sweater stayed on after the rule. So I always laugh when people you know idiots will say that dumb shit. Well, I, I don't. It, does it really matter how it gets done as long as it gets done? You know, exactly. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's just hey, what's the what's the rule say that you can only fight with your jersey on? And uh, yeah, I don't know doesn't matter yeah people are stupid it don't it don't fucking matter <laughs> um but no you had a really sweet uh really sweet knockout against steve webb you know what oh you know, talk us through that fight <laughs> i love how every knockout you're kind of just oh <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> Weber, like comes right Weber back to was, you <laughs> he was always that guy that was so willing to fight and wanted to fight because i think he had a lot of pressure on him where he played that you know he had to go out and play that role all the time and and you know but he played hard he was a, he was a hard-nosed guy played hard and we locked horns, you know, a handful of times. And the night you're talking about, we went at it. And I got him with an uppercut. And when I got him with the uppercut at the end, I actually broke my thumb uh, right off, right at the base, right by the wrist. And I thought it was just dislocated. So I go to the penalty box, and here's my thumb back here. And I'm like, ah, oh, son of a – so I'm pulling on it, pulling on it, trying to get it back in place. and But it had broke off, ended up getting a plate and screws in there to, to hold that together. But – you know, Webby was one of those guys that, uh, you know, he, he was just a brawler. There was nothing methodical about it. There was no, you know, there was no plan about it. He just stood in there and he wanted to throw and sometimes a little too eager maybe and, you know, open himself up a little bit. But, you know, he was a, he was a strong little guy that, you know, when we're talking guys our size, he was one of the few guys, you know, myself and say Ty size that had to, you know, go at all the time. So, it was it was great. It was always a good fight with Webby, but you know that night I was able to catch him with that uppercut. But you know he might have got knocked stiff, but I ended up breaking my thumb and haven't had surgery. So who won that one? <laughs> who really won that one? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know that year you also happened to fight another big big boy, and I mean the size mismatch was crazy. Um, and he he almost didn't really find his legs until he got to the uh, you know the Islanders. But you fought Eric Cairns, and leading up to that you yeah. had you had no elbow pads on. You had your sleeves rolled up in the square off, and it almost looked like you were talking to him. Do you, you remember what you might have been saying to him? Was, I mean, no, sure I don't. Saying, yeah, <laughs> but I'll tell you, Eric Cairns, in those fights when you fight him, he was so big that you had to go on the offense with him. And and a, and a guy like Eric Cairns, you wanted to get up against the wall because you didn't want to get stuck out in the middle of the ice with him. Because their arms were so long that they could just tee you up, they could move you around, they could control you. And I always fought with thought with bigger guys like that. If you got them up against the wall, get their back to the wall, then you know they're only punching you know this far instead of coming from downtown. So you could control them. You get up underneath them. You can come up and and pop that way. But I fought Eric a couple times, but uh, you know he he was just a guy that would he, he when he threw he threw a lot and he threw him quick. 
and you had to be able to make sure that you could either absorb it, you know, let them glance off, you protect yourself in a way, because he'd throw three, four, five, and then he would stop and he'd, he'd kind of, you know, maybe open himself up where he could get that one or two in, but he recovered really quick a lot of the time. So he could come back at you again and you had to kind of absorb four or five to get one or two good ones in. But B's a big man. And, uh, he, he was, he was one of those guys that when he, when he got you in his sights, he was so big and he got turned around, got the arms up and always wanted to square off with you that it was hard at the beginning to get in on him because when he's, when he's standing there and he's got the hands up and, you know, ready to go, you're not just going to lunge in and try to grab onto the jersey. You had to try to weasel your way in, get in underneath, and then pop out from there and start fighting him. So uh, he was another guy that, uh, you know, did a nice job for his size. A lot of times bigger guys are a little harder to uh, keep their balance. But, you know, he seemed to have pretty decent balance when he caught because he'd get his legs really wide apart and then start coming down from downtown. A lot of times that opened him up, but in a lot of cases, too, it was really effective for him. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, Cairnsy, he's another another guy. Who would, I remember him a little bit growing up because I mean, of course, I'm I'm 23, so I, I my wheelhouse is like the guys who fought like yeah, probably like around 2004 and on. Um, so yeah, Cairns, I remember seeing him when on the Islanders, and yeah, I was always a big Cairns fan. He was a uh, you know big big dude. Um, he was kind of like Bugard before Bugard. Um, yeah, but you know, so the next year, yeah, you land a KO, another knockout shocker. Um, on a guy named Dennis Bonvi, and of course, for those out there listening, he's the the record holder for the most penalty minutes of all time in pro hockey. But what was what was that fight like? And there was a couple fights going on. So what was going on there in Chicago? Yeah, I think Paul Cruz was in the other fight. Uh, you know, I forget who he was fighting at that time, but it, it started, and then Dennis and I fought, and, and Dennis and I actually fought right at center ice. It was like right inside the circle, yep. and and we went at it, and. You know, it was a good fight. We like it, we were two more guys that were pretty close to the same size, and and but in that case, we just started throwing, and we just started going and going and going and going, and I was able to catch Dennis and and you know kind of put him down. But yeah, there's there's funny parts to it. You know, sometimes a little hesitant to you know say some of it because you you don't want to embarrass anybody. You don't want to put anybody in a bad spot because. I'll tell you what, he was, he was, as you said, the most penalty minutes, uh, he, in, in pro hockey, he, he battled, this guy battled every freaking day that he was on the ice and he had to do it. And whatever team he may be with expected him to do it. And, you know, a lot of the times didn't get a ton of opportunity in the NHL to do it, you know, beat his brains in, in the minors to, to get a shot at the NHL and get it for a short period of time, go back. So I respect the heck out of what he was able to do, but you know, in any given night, you're talking, you get in a fight, and you knock somebody down or knock somebody out, and it, it could be you on the other side at any given time as well, too. But you know, Dennis was—he was a competitor, and he was a beast. And I did knock him down that night, yes. Uh, and then, you know, he—he he, he wanted another chance at it later on in the game, and I wouldn't give it to him because I was—I didn't know if he was hurt or not, and I didn't want to, you know, do anything stupid and say okay let's do it again just to, to prove a point uh you know i was i was more looking at him as going hey dude i'm not going to be the one that you know you know hurt you or something like this because you know there's something else uh, that just happened in the previous fight so i'm going to let it go and i'm going to respect you for for what you wanted to do and and try to do and and you know respect you for the ultimate first fight anyway so 
uh, yeah, I, I, there's a guy that I still see around too. He works in the NHL as a scout and, you know, when you see him, we have good laughs and, uh, you know, you kind of sit back and a lot of the times we go, you know, how crazy was it? You know, because he experienced a lot of the same things I had to. Yeah, no kidding. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Bonvi as well. You know, all these guys. You fought a lot of a lot of these guys that you fight are some of my favorites. Um, and you know, nothing but respect for Bonvi. And of course, like you said, if the shoe was on the other foot, you know, any given night it could happen. Um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of respect for Bonvi for being able to go out there for so many years and do it. Um, and of course, get the amount of minutes he did. So I mean, you know, you fought him in '98, and so at this point now, you've been in the league for for quite a while. Are you starting? Are you kind of seeing it change? at this point, you know, where, where it's kind of heading and, you know, yeah, you know what you didn't, you didn't see the guys sticking around as long anymore. You weren't, you weren't dealing with the old school guys anymore. It was always a young class coming in. Um, a lot of the guys that you started having to deal with were minor league guys that would come up for a game or two and up and down. They weren't established guys. Um, there was only a handful of us that, you know, were that played that game that you, you locked horns a lot with that, we're everyday guys. We're everyday players in the NHL. You know, Paul Laos and, you know, Ty Domi and guys like this that were, you know, regulars. So you started running into a lot of guys that, you know, were coming up for individual games, certain games, coming up for short periods of time. And, you know, you had to start dealing with that kind of thing again, but not nearly the quality of, of fighter that, you know, you had to deal with in your earliest days. Yeah, absolutely, and it's like, uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it was on its way. It was it wasn't on its way out, but it was kind of getting to there, um, kind of the early two thousands, and it was still there a little bit. But the guys got more pigeonholed, I think, and like you said before, it was more so kind of one dimensional um, at that, or starting to be one dimensional at that point. Um, and before we move on to the next year, I gotta ask, um, you know, did it never line up or anything like that? You know, that you you never happened to fight Proby. And I know a lot of people ask about that sometimes, but, um, you know, it, it just it never worked out on a night and it didn't, you know, didn't line well, up. Well, for, for so many years uh, with Detroit being in the other conference, you never really played them. Right. And in a lot of cases that, uh, you know, when we would go play Detroit, they were so good that, you know, you're, you're dressing a different lineup. You weren't dressing a lineup that was going in there and trying to knock them around. You know, they had guys, you know, Kosher, Probert, but they were so highly skilled that you were you were making sure you played the guys that uh, you know could handle that side of the game. You Detroit was the last place that you would be looking to to go in and having to you know deal with somebody running around because even Proby played the game, played the game right, uh, you know. And and if he didn't have to deal with all the the sideshow antics, he he played the game at at a very high level. So I can remember one night in Detroit. Uh, you know, Proby was playing one side of the ice. I was playing the other. It was right at center ice. And he's just screaming at me and going, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you for whatever reason. Um, and I'm like, okay. So I'm all expecting it. And then by the time, you know, he the puck drops and he made it through the circle. By that time, the referees are, were all in there. And it was a big melee. He smiles to pile up. And, and that's really the closest it came Uh and and I bet you over the years I might have only played against them two or three times. Oh well, that makes I mean it makes a lot of sense. And like you said, when they're in the other conference and you're not playing yeah. really as much, um, so yeah, yeah it makes for, sense. for so many years, Toronto and, and Detroit were in the West, and you know you'd play them once, sometimes twice a year. Uh, and you just never knew, you know, year to year. So you you never had that real opportunity to to fight those kind of guys. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, totally understand that. And like, just figured I'd ask because I know some people ask, you know, did, I get asked all the time and like we do like the hypothetical, like who would you ever want to see fight? And everybody always, a lot of people always put Rob Ray and Bob Probert because everybody wants to see how it would go. Yeah. Um, you know, just like you said, never happened, but it doesn't take away anything from your career, obviously. Um, and so, you know, year is 99. You're kind of almost wrapping up a little bit in Buffalo. Um, but one guy I got to ask you about, well, I see there's uh there's two more guys probably, um, is you happen to fight a guy, Pat Cote. Do you remember fighting him? Um, a big, uh, Patrick like, Cote played for uh, Nashville. Yep. It was in Nashville. You fought him. Yeah. Uh, it was against Nashville. I, I think I it was say. in Buffalo. Yep, it was in Buffalo. Buffalo against Nashville. Yeah. Yep. And I got that guy. Good. Got him really, really good. You tagged um, him down in the corner. I tagged him good. And, uh, yeah, he was a boy. He was he was the kind of prototypical big guy coming in, fighter guy. Uh, you know, later in the '90s, that you know teams were were having that thinking they were going to be guys that were going to be able to kill everybody and play the game and all this kind of thing. And it just it was just the difference in quality and style of fighting then that uh, you, once you got to that point in your career, it's like. This is a cakewalk. This is a cakewalk <laughs> every night compared to, you know, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the guys you're going to have to lock horns with. So, uh, yeah, when you fought a guy like that, I caught him good down the corner. I can remember it. I've seen the fight since. And, you know, you know, he kind of went down. And, you know, Patrick Cote is a guy that I think has had some troubles along the way over yes, the years. He's he got himself in – and he was actually – in a, in a, in a spot just south of Buffalo here that, uh, you know, they were holding him in there for a little while. So <laughs> I giggled when I used to have a restaurant in Springville and the, and the guys would stop in from, from the place and, and they were, came in one day and said, Hey, I got a friend of yours in here, uh, you know, Cote. And I'm like, no way. Uh, seriously. So yeah, it's unfortunate the direction some guys take, but you know, he was, he was a guy that was, you know, a short period of time, but nothing really that, uh, you know, you, you sat in bed the night before going, oh, shit, I got a Patrick Cote tomorrow. I got a freaking, you know, how what am I going to do with this guy? Right. Yeah, and uh, with Cote, he, um, <laughs> of course, he goes on to play in the Quebec League, and that's where I know him a lot from is the uh, the crazy Quebec League up there in uh, the LNH. And he, uh, it was a little bit of a different Cote up there at that point, a lot of, uh, a lot of whey protein and chicken, we'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of those guys in the, in the you know, the mid-'90s and that that you could tell that were – coming in and those kind of guys that you're just like, Oh Frank, here we go. Another one of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, nothing really ever said about it, but I, not two of them ever being, were too successful. Right. Yeah. And it's, of course, you know, everything for anybody tries to get an edge. And so, um, yeah, when yeah. Cote, when Cote got to the LNH, he was fighting at like two seventy, So yeah, he was, he was huge. Um, and that year you also fought a big name guy and she's often regarded of, held the number one spot for a while there when he played was George LaRock. What was it like fighting big George? I fought George once. It was in Buffalo and George wasn't going to hurt you with his punch. You know, he was a big guy, but you know, he'd throw punches. He wasn't going to hurt you. But the hard part with George was, was he was so big and so strong that he, when he grabbed onto you, he wasn't just grabbing on to hold on to, to keep his balance to throw punches. He tried driving you down into the ice. He just put his whole 300 pounds or whatever the heck he was and just tries to bury you into the ice as he's. And for me, when I fought him that night, you're going at it, going at it, and you're trying to hold the big prick up at the same time that you're fighting him. And 
it all of a sudden hit to a point where my leg gave out and I'm like, I went down and I'm like my hamstring, my ham, I, my hamstring from trying to hold him up as he was fighting because he just kind of leaned and tried to push you into the ice. And, you know, I, I, I was like sitting on my knee on the ice. I'm like, ah, my, my hamstring and nobody would believe me. Oh yeah, 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 whatever. The next day I come to the rink and I'm black and blue from my ass to my knee because my hamstring had gone trying to hold him up while in the fight. <laughs> but he, cause he was just so big and powerful, but in a fight fight, I don't think he was really good. He, he wasn't that, Oh my God, here comes George. He's going to punch me and it's going to hurt. No, there, a lot of those guys, especially the bigger guys like that, they weren't going to hit you when they, they weren't going to hurt you when they hit you. They, they would throw a lot of punches, but they weren't like, Boom, boom. But they weren't Joe Kosher. Joe Kosher hit you. You knew you got hit by a truck. And it didn't matter. You know, he would throw one punch or ten punches. They were the same. And it just stung you every time. A lot of guys, and, and I look at George as one of those, they, they, yeah, they look good and all this kind of thing. But punch-wise, it wasn't a devastating knock-you-out, try-to-knock-you-out punch. It was more for show. Right, yeah, and uh, George LaRocky sure was strong. Um, I know apparently yeah, he was. what he used to do for one of his routines for being able to hold on was he'd uh, do pull-ups just holding, like, towels. But just by doing, just by holding up the towels oh, to work on his grip. Oh, he was a big, strong, strong oh, yeah. man. Yeah, strong did, SOB. But you try holding that up and fighting at the same time, it's like, good luck. <laughs> um, well, so at this point, you know, you, you get traded to Ottawa. Was it kind of, you know, a little bit bittersweet for you leaving Buffalo like that? Uh, yeah, I was, I wanted to finish it off there, but, uh, our team wasn't going to make the playoffs that year. Uh, I think that going into the next year, Darcy Regeer, they knew he wasn't going to resign me. So he wanted to give me a chance to go somewhere. So I talked about with him before him and Lindy. Uh, so they were saying if the opportunity comes up, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, whatever. And you know what happened? I went to Ottawa. John Muckler was there. They had a fantastic team. I had a time in my life there. It was good to see, you know, after 15 years, see a different organization, different guys, different everything. We had a good team the first year there, lost in the conference finals. But, uh, yeah, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. Yeah, a guy you happened to fight while you were down in the uh, the AHL is uh, Brandon Sugden. Do you remember fighting oh, Sugar? I remember that because that was that – was, the second time I went back. Yep, that was the your day, second the, year. The first time I got traded, and it was at the deadline, I went and spent the rest of the year. The next year, I started doing the TV. So I hadn't skated since my last game that spring before. So we went through the whole summer, through the whole Christmas, and it was just before the trade deadline, and I hadn't skated in six months, maybe. Oh, man. And my wife and I were in the Bahamas. My phone rings and it's John Muckler and he goes, "What kind of shape are you in?" And I'm here. I'm laying on the beach and I'm like, "I'm in great shape, working out all the time." <laughs> and he's like, "I need you. You got to get here." And I'm like, "Okay." So literally, you know, got a flight out of the Bahamas that day. Got the Buffalo. Got here. Got my stuff. I skated once at the rink here when I got home that day, just to I because I, to skate, and got my truck, drove to Ottawa, and so. In Bahamas, got home, skated, drove to Ottawa, which is a five-hour drive, spent the night, got to the rink the next morning, practiced with the team. So the second time I was on the ice in about six months, and he goes, 
okay, you're ready to go. They were playing somebody that night. I forget who it was. And I'm like, oh, shoes, this is quick. Okay, why not? He goes, no, you're playing in Binghamton or Syracuse or wherever the hell it was that night. <clears throat> so from Ottawa all the way down to Syracuse, so this is all in 48 hours. <laughs> and my first shift on the ice, here comes this guy, and I'm like, and he goes, hey, Legend, we going to go? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, you know, I was like, what? I said, dude, I haven't even skated in six months. Could you give me a period or two to warm up? And he's like, the puck drops, and all you hear is, nope. <laughs> and I'm like, here we go at it. And I'll tell you, everything I had in my body that to, to try to fight and stand up, and I didn't want to go down, I'm like, because I was in awful shape. And I was, like, <laughs> bad. I was out of shape. I hadn't skated. The fight's over. Syracuse is one of the smallest rinks I was ever in. And we're standing at, like, one blue line. The penalty box is, like, on the other side. And I look across, and I'm like, the penalty box looked like it was about a thousand miles away to skate across. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I can even skate across the ice to get into that penalty box. And I'm like, that was, I, it, I had everything in my body that I didn't want to go down and just kept going and going and going. But I felt so bad. And I'll tell you, I was, I was not in good shape to be doing that. And he was a big, big guy and he was pretty good, good at what he did. And uh, I was pretty lucky to get out of that one unscathed. <laughs> Sugden was a uh, was a big dude, and he definitely he did it for a few years it there was, too. Yep. Yeah, you go from you go from sipping pina coladas in the Bahamas to out there, yeah, fighting to forty eight hours, hours <laughs> maybe fifty five hours later, fighting a friggin' monster in Syracuse, New York. After going all the way to Ottawa, driving all the way down to Sy- yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> but it was a great experience. I'll tell you what, it was a great experience. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so that year, also, you fought you fought former teammate. Andrew Peters what was yeah. it like having to fight him well I had hit somebody in the corner Bray or Drury or somebody and we're in Ottawa and and Andrew was a guy that came in after me to to uh you know kind of fill that role and I had worked with Andrew all year long me being on the TV up to that point everything about it um so I'm working with these guys every day and then you know it comes to this so he he I had got a penalty for something. I'm in the penalty box, and he's literally standing outside the penalty box, banging on the glass. I'm going to get you when you come on. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, what? You're a little puppet. Lindy sent you out here, and, and you know, you're a little puppet and all this kind of thing. I'm just giving it to him. The play's going on, and he's literally still standing outside the penalty box waiting for me to get out. So finally, my penalty's over. I jump out on the ice, and, you know, we drop the gloves, and we start going at it, but. You know, Petey was a guy that, you know, he was always the show, got it up. And we, we went at it, caught him with a couple. I got a couple of really good pictures of him off balance and me hitting him and, you know, kind of show him that every so often now. But yeah, it kind of, in, in a way, it kind of sucked because after you're doing what you did for that team so long and then, you know, having somebody kind of sent out to, to come after you, you know, after you were done playing and them knowing the situation that, you know, it was, it was kind of uh, kind of different, but nevertheless, it's part of the business. And you know, I, Andrew's a good friend of mine, and we still work together. And and but I still tell him all the time that uh, you know I beat his ass. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's got to be tough, kind of fighting your former team there. Uh, you know, because like I said, you played so many years in Buffalo, and then you got to go and yeah. you're fight, now you're fighting against them. Um, but you know, getting to the very last fight of your career here, and what a career you had. And what a game this was, too. And a lot of people have seen this this beautiful game. Uh, but it was against Donald Brashear. 
and it was in the brawl field game between you guys yep. in Ottawa and Philadelphia. What was that yep. game like, and what was that fight like for you? Well, I'll tell you what, it, it wasn't that bad of a game till that point. Donald and I got together, I think it was in front of their net, our net, whatever it was. Donald and I got locked up in front of their net, or and, and uh, we went at it. And you know, just the fight, you know, we go at it. And then the next thing, there was other things going on. I get thrown out, but that was my last fight, as you said. And I normally never really got cut ever, but somehow coming out of that one, I was leaking out of the corner and sides of both eyes and, you know, little Nick's right here and the blood's coming down. And I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, I just had to fight this guy for the umpteenth time. And he's a big, massive man. And I'm like, Get me out of here. This is enough. I'm done with this stuff. And that game, I got in the dressing room. And from that point on, it was like every face-off, somebody was getting a fight. Somebody was getting a fight. I'm sitting in the room. And Ottawa was the most non-physical team that you're ever going to be a part of. And they were such a skilled team, wide open, you know, that the style they played at that time. And then, like, every whistle, all of a sudden, there'd be the place go crazy and somebody else would walk into the dressing room. Somebody would walk into the dressing room. Somebody would walk into the dressing room. And getting kicked out of the game. And I think it was the highest penalty minute game in, in Ottawa history. Uh, I think Jason Spezza actually uh, leads the, the Ottawa Senators in single game penalty minutes. And that was from that game. And, you know, Spezza and I were roommates while we were there. And I'm like, this is, this is not why they brought me here to teach you how to do this. They brought me here to help you uh, deal with the pressures and everything of the game not showing you how to fight. They're going to be pissed off at me, but I've never seen a group of guys that, you know, like I said, were so highly skilled and that's the way they played the game, but so excited after a game, realizing what they did, how many fights there was, how crazy it was. Nobody got hurt and how much fun they had. And I just sat back and I laughed. I go, you know, it, it took that for you guys to experience this, uh, you know, for the first time. And, you know, I think it was good for their group. It was good for their group because it kind of showed them that they, they could stand up to teams, they could play against teams, and, you know, physically weren't going to get pushed around. They could handle themselves if they needed to. So I think it was a huge, huge step for that group. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I love that. That video is like, I think it's like 10, 15 minutes long, and it's just like you said, fight after fight. You should have had just a revolving door going on inside of oh, the it dressing was. room. It was funny because <laughs> as he got a few guys in there, you know, it was just like, and all of a sudden, we'd be, we'd be sitting there going, not even wanting to look out the door going, who do you think it is this time? Who do you think it is this time? And all of a sudden, you know, somebody would walk through the door, you know, Mike Fisher, like I said, Jason Spezza, all guys that you never would have expected uh, getting tossed out of games, you know, for fighting in that situation. But uh, it was it was a great experience. Yeah, and it was like, oh, man, there was it was like under a minute left in the game, and it was just whistle, 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 and it was like the longest last minute of a hockey game. And, you know, Jacques Martin hated hated that kind of a game he hated it i think that's why he hated me so much is because you know maybe i might have played that like he he actually told me the second time i went there he says hey you're not here because i wanted you you're here because john muckler so you just just so you know that and i'm like okay thanks you know what i know where i stand and yeah okay coach no problem 
So, oh well. <laughs> yeah, you got him who doesn't like it, and then you got Lindy Ruff on the other bench. Just or not Lindy Ruff, excuse me. Um, Ken, Ken Hitchcock, just you know, so, yeah, go out there, you're good. <laughs> go ahead yeah, and do it. Yeah, yeah. So, oh um, well. Well, man, what a legendary career you had. And if you don't mind, you know, we got, I, I run an enforcer group on Facebook. Um, and of course, you know, my listeners know, and it's got 10,000 people. And of course, we're not going to get to every question, but you know, just some fan questions that people would like to ask you if, if you don't mind. Sure. No problem. Um, well, so, you know, Chris Watkins asked, is there any player that you fought that kind of surprised you? Like, you know, you, you, oh, wow, this guy did way better than I thought. Kevin Deneen. I locked up with Kevin one time and, and he was a strong, strong guy. And, you know, I think it was more fighting out of fear than anything, but he, he, he was pretty good. Awesome. There you go. Um, yeah. So I've actually, you know, he's got some good fights on there too. Now that I think about it, looking yep. at, thinking about his fight card, um, you know, Pat, Pat Barton, of course, I just had him on as a guest and he played in the OHL. Uh, but he, uh, he asked who was the toughest guy that you fought in the OHL. Oh, in the OHL. Oh, gosh, there was some guys uh, back then, you know, in, in Belleville, uh, the Belleville Bulls, they were uh, Charlie, uh, what the heck was his name? Um, Todd Hawkins, he was another guy, he was unbelievable, he was drafted by Vancouver, Charlie Moore was his name in Belleville, uh, there was some guys, uh, Hatcher, you know, he played in, in uh, North Bay at the time, but there was there was so many guys that you know in the OHL at that time Shane Corson you know Ty Domi all these kind of guys you know that's what the league was and it was tough guys uh, you know Dan Gratton there's another one that was he was a really tough guy as well. There you go. Um, and this one's funny, and of course I've I've kind of messaged him back and forth and become actually friends with him. But uh, you might know the name, but Todd St. Louis, and he played in a charity game with you back in '95, I guess, in uh, Belleville. And he said uh, he might have hit you. Do you remember that by any chance? No, no, that was so. I don't remember what I did yesterday. Are you kidding me? Back in '95. <laughs> Um, but Belleville's back where I'm from. My town, Sterling, is about 10, 15 minutes north of Belleville, and that's where we went to high school and everything. But yeah, I played in Cornwall. Belleville had the Bulls, and I'll tell you, it was a huge rivalry, and I loved going into that building every time, uh, you know, playing those guys. Because people there, I was from there, but it seemed like they hated you because, you know, you're on the opposition. But it was it was so cool to go into and, and play against those guys that uh, – you know, Brian Marchman and all those kind of guys played on that team. It, they had some seriously good, tough teams there. Well, there you go. There you go, Screwy, for you listening. Of course, he goes by Screwy St. Louis, and he was a tough guy out in the uh, the old Western Pro Hockey League. Uh, and I'll do lo- one last one here, and it's from Patrick, and it says, uh, which team, if any, did you fear the most playing? I don't think it was a team. Uh, you know, back in the day, there was always one or two guys on each team, but you know, there were certain places you went that you knew it was going to be tough because just the way they played, you know, going into the Boston Gardens against the Bruins back then, uh, always had tough teams, a very tough place to play. Uh, you know, even the Leafs, when we started playing them a little more often, you know, Wendell Clark and, and all these kind of guys, they, they, had a, they had a pretty solid, tough team there as well. Uh, you just knew that it was always going to be something uh, special there. But, uh you know, I don't think there was one team that that stands out to say, "Hey, I, oh my God, we got to go play these guys because you know what they have." Uh, you know, I think in most cases we were pretty fortunate that we had that team. We had that team for a long time with, like I said, Brad May, Matthew Barnaby, Bobby Bugner, Brent Hughes, Gordy Donnelly. That teams didn't want to play us. 
and because they didn't know what was going to happen. And I've talked to so many guys, so many guys, you know, since we're done, and they're like, we hated playing you guys <laughs> just because of the way you come at it. And especially in your building, they were like, let's get in here, let's get out of here, uh, you know, just because of the style of play that we we had. So, you know, it's kind of that's kind of cool. But, you know, I, I don't think there was any one team that you're like, oh, my God, here we go, and you knew it was going to happen. You knew there was going to be individuals in every team, but as a team in general, no. Right, yeah, yeah. People coming down with the buffalo flu when they came into the barn. <laughs> yeah, that awesome. Philadelphia flu was always a big one. You know, so that was that was a tough place as well. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there you have it, folks. Rob Ray. I mean, what a what an awesome interview. And I, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This is awesome. Um, I was surprised he messaged back at me. You know, coming back out. No problem. You know what? My daughter got me hooked on the uh, Instagram, and it's yep. been a pretty cool way of just showing pictures and, you know, to my friends back home a lot and, and kind of communicating that way. So I, it's, I enjoy it, put some stuff out there and, uh, you know, it's a neat way. I've, I've gotten contact with so many guys from the past guys have played junior with and that, that, you know, I had no other way of getting in contact with them through it. So yeah, it's been a pretty neat tool to uh, reconnect with a lot of guys. So yeah, I enjoy it. So it's, uh, it's something I try to do a lot. Yeah, for sure. It was funny because I, I was like, my show had just started, and I mostly most of the time I typically interview guys. They might have played a couple of games in the NHL, and then uh, most of them were typically minor league guys. Although I just had like Andre Juan, Kevin Kaminsky on. Um, but yeah, when he got back to me, I was like, "Holy shit, Rob, Rob Ray!" <laughs> so that yeah, that's good. cool. I, you know what? When I people ask questions, I like an, like you know answer back, and you know I know a lot of guys don't. I, I sit every couple of days and go through it and you know, answer back to some of them. You know, what I like about Instagram is it's all positive. It's not like Twitter where oh, somebody's Twitter, putting Twitter's an opinion awful. out there and I hate it. I have an account, but I, I've never really been on it and I don't want to go on it. I have to have it for work, but <laughs> I like this because if you put a picture out, it's not, Hey, you know, you asshole, you know, this and that it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's neat. Somebody has got a cool comment. It's fun. So it, it's not something where you have to worry about what people are going to say about everything. It's a it's a cool thing. Exactly. Yeah. Don't go on Twitter. Twitter's awful. <laughs> no, I never awful. will. I'm on it just cause, because there's a good uh, there's a good little fight group that we always like. You know, uh, we'll, we'll sit there and bullshit back and forth. But um, yeah. So, anyways, man, I you know I can't thank you enough for coming on. And this has been awesome here again. And of course, you know the Skype video. I got Razor sitting here in my uh, my guest bedroom. <laughs> so um, no, it's been awesome. And I, I you know again I can't thank you enough for coming on. Hey, no problem. Anytime. Uh, good luck with what you're doing. I think it's cool keeping the uh, the old game alive because right now it's it's dying. It's dying quick. But you know what I found out? A lot of the kids, you know, because still working with the team, being around the young guys, a lot still ask a lot of questions about it because they watch it. They have the opportunity to see it on YouTube. And, you know, because it's not in their game now, they ask a lot of questions of what it was like and, you know, what would you do in this situation? And, and sometimes even guys asking for little pointers just in case they have to maybe lock horns and get involved in the game at some point. But uh, I think it's nice because I, I think it is dying in the game, but the passion is still there for it and the awareness of it is still there. And, you know, I think that's what kind of brings everybody night to night, never knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny, like even just this year, you know, you had the uh, the old Battle of Alberta got a little heated again. I don't really watch much today. I just, this is personally, it's just not for me. And I don't need to see a fight every game, but I just think a, a lot of the games are just flat today, unfortunately. But the old uh, Battle of Alberta was pretty good this year. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you're you're sitting there doing a game and, you know, it's going a little slow and it's like in the back of your mind's going, hey, 
yeah, it is a matter if you win or lose a hockey game. But on a big picture, too, it's an entertainment business. And right. you're trying to entertain the people that are in the building. And, you know, I can remember back years ago when things are quiet or dull, you'd go out and get things fired up. And all of a sudden, bang, you know, the, the, the people are on the edge of their seat. They're going nuts. They're happy. There was a couple of fights, you know, whatever it may be. And, uh, you know, they're going away and they can't wait to get back the next night. You still got to be able to sell the game. You know, selling the game isn't uh, playing great defensive hockey and, you know, playing, uh, you know, four or five power plays every night because, you know, that's the way the game's being called. So you got to be careful with it, too. And, and hopefully that, you know, maybe some point, uh, you know, a little more of it sneaks back into the game again. Exactly. Um, well, man, again, I can't thank you enough. And this has been awesome. And, uh, you know, all the best to you. And, of course, you know, with what you're doing with TV. And I know you're coaching a little bit here and there. Uh, so all the best to you, man. No problem. I enjoyed it. Anytime you want to talk, give me a call. Absolutely. Well, you have yourself a good night. All right. You as well, bud. You got to fight for your right.